Thank you for downloading the Grove City Vineyard Sermon Podcast. Enjoy today's message. Welcome everyone once again to the Vineyard. My name is Christian Root and, and I am one of the pastors here. And I, I am so thankful I get to share today. And I'm going to jump right in, church. I'm going to jump right in. We're currently in the middle of a series entitled simply The Kingdom of God. And over the the coming weeks, we will be exploring and examining different aspects of God's kingdom together. And so I'm really excited for this series, really excited to share today, and I, I would love to pray. And so would you just pray briefly with me, and then we're going to jump in. Let's pray together now. Jesus, I, I thank you so much for the team that, uh, that is heading out this afternoon. And again, as Tom just, just prayed, as I, I ask the that you would accompany that team, that you would use that team, that you would bless that team and help them to be a blessing to others. And and Father, I I pray now that you would put power on my words, that that you would help me as I preach. I I pray for your anointing, for your help, for your empowerment. And I I pray, Father, that that you would give us eyes to to see today, that you would give us ears to hear. I, I pray for the gift of faith to be given in this room, Father. And I pray that for those among us who are hurting, who are struggling, who, who feel like they're, they're at their wit's end, that you would meet them, that you would encourage them this morning and strengthen them in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, churches, I, I just said, we, we are in the, currently in a series entitled simply The Kingdom of God. And when we refer, church, to the kingdom of God, we're we're not referring to a physical place like Paris or Chicago or Scottsdale. Rather, the, the kingdom of God represents God's reign and rule. And so where the Lord is reigning and ruling, where, where his will is accomplished, the kingdom of God is present. And as followers of Jesus, we have been tasked with extending God's kingdom, with extending his reign and rule by proclaiming the gospel and feeding the hungry and healing the sick and freeing others from demonic oppression as we wait for Jesus' return when the kingdom of God will be fully established on earth as it is now in heaven. But church, here's what we need to understand To seek to extend God's kingdom is to enter into conflict. To seek to extend God's kingdom is to enter into a fight. As we labor to advance the kingdom of God, church, we we enter into contested space. For the Bible is clear that, that on this earth and in the heavenly realms, there is not one kingdom but two. In addition to the kingdom of God, led by the Lord and his angels and and those who call upon the name of Jesus, there is the kingdom of darkness, led by Satan and his demonic horde. And the the kingdom of darkness, friends, is unwilling uh, unwilling to relinquish, rather, any ground, any territory, any influence to the kingdom of God without a fight, without a counterattack, without a response in kind. And we find references to this great conflict of the kingdoms throughout Scripture. Here are just a few examples that we find. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
We have not, Paul insists, entered into a peacekeeping mission, but into a struggle, into a battle, into a war. And in 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul compares his walk with Jesus to a fight, to a conflict. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, Paul says. One cannot be a follower of Jesus, Paul understood, if they're not willing to be a fighter for Jesus. One cannot claim that Jesus is their savior if they're unwilling to do the work of a soldier. And in 1 Peter Chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says this. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The, nev- the devil is not merely portrayed as a stubborn spirit resistant to the Lord and insistent on going his own way. No, he is called our enemy, our adversary. And, and we're told that not only does this enemy resist our attempts to extend God's kingdom, but that this enemy is, is actively on the offensive as well, looking to inflict harm, looking to steal back territory. And, and this is why, as a, a Christian, it will never do to simply stay out of the fray. It will never work to try and avoid spiritual warfare or kingdom conflict at all costs. For even if you are reluctant to head out to war, war, Peter makes clear, is coming for you. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, spiritual Christians look upon the world not as a playground, but as a battleground. True Christians, Tozer is saying, recognize that they have been given a real mission to extend a real kingdom. And true Christians understand that this real mission will be met with real resistance by a real enemy. Now, now this morning, church, I, I want to offer three reasons why it's imperative we remember that as Christians were at war. Three reasons why we must remember that this world is a, a battleground and not a playground. And so let me begin. Number one, church, why must we emphasize that the kingdom of God is at war? Well, because embracing our spiritual battle produces perspective. It produces perspective. The Queen Mary was a luxury British ocean liner that was built in 1936. This beautiful ship regularly took passengers from Southampton, England, to New York City, and it was a marvel in its day. The Queen Mary featured two indoor swimming pools, multiple beauty salons, libraries, and children's nurseries, uh, featured a, a music studio and lecture hall, telephone connectivity to anywhere in the world, outdoor tennis courts, and of course, dog kennels, dog kennels. The largest room on board was the first-class dining room, which was called the Grand Salon and spanned three stories in height. But just a couple of years after the Queen Mary's maiden voyage, World War II broke out in Europe. And this impressive ocean liner built to to cater to the wealthy, built to provide Americans and Brits with comfortable vacations, this ocean liner was converted into a troop carrier for Allied soldiers. And to this day, the Queen Mary still holds the record for carrying the most troops in one passage. In July of 1943, the Queen Mary carried 15,740 U.S. troops across the Atlantic in one trip. 
And I doubt that these troops took advantage of the beauty salons or music studio while on board. And why, friends, was the Queen Mary transitioned from a luxury liner to a troop carrier? Well, because war changes everything. Because war helps us to discern what is true and what is trivial, what is worth much and what is worthless. War gives us a new perspective. And so let me, let me offer you two ways that war changes our perspective. Number one, church, war highlights the need for all hands to be on deck. The need for everybody to contribute, every able body to contribute to the war cause. The need for, for every individual to sacrifice for the greater good. Like many of you, I, I was in awe last winter as I watched videos of older Ukrainian women showing their daughters how to create Molotov cocktails as they awaited the invasion of Russian troops. I watched in awe as I saw both young and old, both men and women, preparing their cities for the inevitable invasion. Men and women enlisting for the front lines. Men and women stockpiling supplies. Men and women looking for some way to contribute. There can be no idle bystanders when war arrives in your homelands. And this is why Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, each of you, all of you, should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Each of you, Peter stresses, has a part to play. You are not too old, friend, as Pastor Tom just shared, to contribute to the war effort. You are not too young in the faith to provide help for the cause. You are not too busy or too sinful or too broken to lend your hand of service. And one of the best prayers that you can pray is simply this. Father, would you help me in some capacity, in some way to contribute to your war efforts? Would you help me in some capacity, in some way to help extend the kingdom of God? For I don't want to live like it's peacetime when there's a battle on my doorstep. And I, I don't want to live like I'm on vacation while the war rages on. And I don't want to treat my faith like a trivial hobby when you've enlisted me, Father, to fight for your cause. I'm not typically in the habit of quoting Friedrich Nietzsche, but I'll make an exception today. Nietzsche writes this. He says, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. He or she who has found their why is given strength to pursue their duty. And so, friends, why, why do we earnestly pray for our family members and our coworkers? And, and why do we serve here on a Sunday instead of just sleeping in? And why do we look for opportunities to invite our neighbors to church or, or support missionaries in the Middle East or head down to Kentucky on a mission trip to care for hurting people? Well, why do we keep ourselves sexually pure? Why do we volunteer in our children's ministry? Or, or why do we hold our grieving friend's hands and ask to pray with her? Because, church, we have found our why. Because we understand that we have not been invited by Jesus to lounge on his ocean liner, but rather have been invited to board his troop carrier and head to the front of the line. 
And secondly, church, how does war change our perspective? How does war change our perspective? Well, war highlights the need to exchange our outrage for action. The need to exchange our outrage for action. Listen, because of social media, we live at a time in which many Christians prefer commentary over committed service. We often would rather write an angry Facebook post or offer a passionate rant on Instagram than roll up our sleeves and engage in real work. But we need to understand that the devil, our enemy, is unconcerned with our outrage. He's unmoved by our rants and opinions. He's unimpressed with our long discussions in the lobby about the problems with our culture or the problems with our schools or the problems with our politicians. In fact, I I think, if I'm honest, I, I think the devil encourages it. Because a long conversation about what's wrong with the world can deceive us into thinking that we're actually invested in the solution. No, what makes the enemy nervous is not our opinions, but our initiative. What makes the enemy anxious is is when your concern with the youth of today causes you to to sign up to serve in our student ministry. What makes the enemy nervous is is when your concern with the lack of fathers in our nation causes you to sign up to be a mentor with an, an organization like Big Brothers Big Sisters. What makes the enemy nervous is when your legitimate frustrations with the ugliness of racism causes you to befriend someone who looks different than you and invite them over for dinner. Our opinions have little worth if we're unwilling to address the actual problems. For the kingdom of God will never be extended through our assessments, but only through our actions. Secondly, church, embracing our spiritual battle reminds us that that we must utilize the right weapons. That we must utilize the right weapons. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes this. He says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We're getting a few history lessons today. Let me give you another. When the Nazis invaded Poland during World War II, a a brigade of Polish cavalry, that is soldiers who fought on horseback, charged a group of German troops camped in the forest. The Polish cavalry, with sword in hand, caught the Germans off guard. And at first, their their risky attack seemed like a wonderful success. But German armored cars soon emerged from the forest path, and the Polish cavalry's horses and swords were no match for the Nazis' machine guns. Horses don't Farewell, it turns out, against tanks. And so, church, it is vitally important when entering a a war that we utilize the right weapons. It is vitally important for those of us who, who would call ourselves followers of Jesus that we attempt to fight not with the weapons of this world or the weapons of our own ingenuity. No, we must fight with spiritual weapons that have the power, Paul says, to bring down strongholds. And what are these weapons, these spiritual weapons that we are to utilize as we fight? Well, well, this could be an entire sermon series, of course, but let me give you just three, just three this morning. 
To begin, we, we start with, with the most obvious weapon, which is the weapon of prayer. The weapon of prayer. You know, on the night of Jesus's, or, yeah, Jesus's arrest, on the night that he was betrayed and, and arrested, P- Peter committed the, the greatest moral failure of his life. He denied the one who he loved. He denied the Savior of this world three separate times. And the reason why Peter experienced such a precipitous fall is because on the night of his betrayal, he chose a sword over prayer. Twice, Jesus, you might remember, asked Peter to pray. Twice he he pleaded with Peter to keep watch in prayer that he might not fall into temptation. And twice Peter chose sleep instead. But when Judas and his entourage came to arrest Jesus, Peter picked up a sword and sliced off the ear of the high priest's servant. Peter was willing to utilize the weapons of this world, but he neglected the weapons of the spirits. And friends, when when you neglect the weapons of the spirits, when when you neglect to pray, for example, you will find that you have brought a horse and a sword to a tank fight. You will find that your weapons, however powerful you may believe that they are, your weapons are insufficient. For the primary way, friends, the primary way, that we conquer the sin of lust, or the primary way we strengthen our marriage, or the the primary way that we find freedom from the opinions of of others, or freedom from the bitterness of our past, is by utilizing the weapon of prayer. By, By coming again and again to the throne of our king and asking for his help, asking for his intervention. We have no hope. Friends, of winning the battles within our life until we take seriously the words of Isaiah 64, verse 4. Isaiah writes this. He says, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Our God does not act on behalf of those who merely work for him. He does not act on behalf of those who complain to him. He does not act on behalf of those who who talk about him or sacrifice for him or give financially to him. No, our God acts, he intervenes, he moves on behalf of those who wait for him. Those who wait for him by coming to him continually in prayer. Those who wait for him by asking for his strength and his power and his deliverance. And not only is is prayer, friends, a wonderful weapon to utilize as we seek to defend ourselves, but but prayer, of course, is wonderfully effective in freeing others as well. Paul Washer said this. He said, a person may not allow us to talk to them about God, but they cannot keep us from talking to God about them. I love that. Your son might have no interest in hearing you share the gospel. and Your coworker might have no desire to hear about what Jesus has done for you. And your mom might completely shut down your attempts to, to ask her what she believes. But while others can ask you to close your mouth in their presence, they cannot keep you from opening your mouth in the Lord's presence. They cannot keep you from coming to your father again and again, asking for him to open their eyes. And friend, if you're here and you would say, you know, 
I, I do not currently have a relationship with Jesus that is making a real difference in my life, or I'm kind of new to church, or, you know, this is my first time, or I'm just kind of dipping my toe in the water here. You need to know, friend, that, that you have folks around you who are praying for you right now. You, you need to know that there, there have been people in your life who are praying that you would meet this Jesus, that you would come to know the grace that they themselves have received. And, and friend, if that is you, I, I, I just have to share now. I, I did not grow up in the church. I, I know I'm up here and I'm talking about war with the kingdom. I, I did not grow up in the church. I, I did not grow up as a follower of Jesus. And I need to tell you, friends, that the best thing that you could ever do is to come to Jesus and receive the grace that he has for you. The best thing that you could ever do is receive this, this, this beautiful truth by faith that your sin can, can be washed away, that you can be made new, that you can be accepted and embraced and loved by the creator of this universe. I, I, I mean, many of you know my story. I, I was doing everything I could to run away from the Lord. I was, I was chasing girls and, and pursuing the frat guy lifestyle, and none of it went ever compared to this beautiful truth that Jesus has accepted me, that he has, he has chosen me, that he has welcomed me home. And so, friends, if you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know that people are praying for you. And I, I just plead with you, even today, to say, Jesus, I, I want to follow you as my Savior. I, I, I want to follow you as my Lord. Second weapon of the Spirit in our battle against the kingdom of darkness, friends, is the weapon of God's Word. It's the weapon of God's Word. I have a, a family friend who's currently battling brain cancer. And last year, the, the medicine that she was taking to treat her cancer essentially wiped out her immune system. The drug prescribed to kill the cancer cells within her also killed those cells that help her fight against infectious diseases. And so, of course, she was in a very dangerous predicament, and she was forced to stay at home. And friends, when we neglect God's word, when our Bible acquires dust on the shelf, we effectively lose our spiritual immune system. When we're not regularly coming to God's word and regularly reminded of the greatness of God and the purposes of God and the future plans of God, when we're not regularly reminded by the scriptures of, of who Jesus is and who we are and why we're here, our spiritual immune system weakens. Our, our ability to fight off the lies of the enemy and the lies of this world and the lies of our own foolish hearts is diminished. The truth is, friends, that, that no one has ever died from a weak immune system. No, those with weakened immune systems tragically die at times because they were unable to withstand the attack of an invading virus. And in the same way, a, a lack of engagement with the Bible has never caused someone to walk away from the Lord to die spiritually. But when a, a person lacks a spiritual immune system, they're left vulnerable to an attack on their beliefs or an attack on their integrity. And in their weakened spiritual state, their, their faith simply fails to survive the attack. And so when, when someone that we care about, 
walks away from the Lord. We, we might blame their atheistic philosophy professor. We, we might blame their partying at college. Or, or we might blame the new boyfriend that we don't particularly care for. But the root cause, the primary cause of our loved one's decision to turn away from Jesus was their weakened spiritual immune system. And so listen, listen. I don't want to be someone who downs vitamin C packets and zinc tablets and drinks plenty of fluids when I feel a cold coming on, but then neglects my spiritual immunity. I don't want to be someone who's more thoughtful about how to fight a cold than how to fight for my spiritual health. Because I am in a war, because you, friend, are in a war, we must do everything that we can to strengthen our spiritual immunity. We must do everything we can to keep our noses in the Bible, for this is one of the way, this is one of the chief ways that we defend against the enemy's attacks. The third weapon of the Spirit I, I want to highlight just briefly is, is the weapon of worship. It's the weapon of worship. Listen, when, when worship isn't present in your life, your problems will feel big and your God will feel small. But here is the beauty of worship. Here's why it's such an effective spiritual weapon. When you begin to worship, both here or at home, your problems will begin to feel small, and your God will begin to feel big. Some of us feel like our greatest need is smaller problems. We need smaller debt. We need less drama at home. We need less anxiety at work. But the truth is, your greatest need, friend, is not smaller problems, but a bigger God. Your greatest need is to take your eyes off of yourself and place them on him. To focus on his acceptance and not your shortcomings. To focus on his accomplishments and not your disappointments. His perfections and not your mistakes. His power and not your weakness. His beauty and not your flaws. Yeah, you can clap for that. And friends, here is the truth I have discovered regarding the spiritual weapons. It is when I want to utilize these weapons the least that I need them the most. It is when I least want to pray that I most need to speak to my Father. And it is when I least want to read my Bible that I most need the truth found within. And it is when I least want to worship that I'm most in need of putting in my earbuds. To refuse to worship, friend, because you don't feel like it, it's like saying, I'm too sick to take medicine, or I'm too tired to sleep, or I'm too hungry to eat. It is when we are at our lowest that we most need to repeat the words of the psalmist who said, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And, and friends, listen, we, we don't just engage in worship for our own benefit, of course, but we do it for the Lord. We do it for the Lord. As John Weiss has said, we don't sing to God because life is good. We sing to God because God is good. We sing because he is worthy. We sing because he is wonderful. We sing because he is king. And so, friend, you, you might not be able to sing in tune to save your life. And you might not have a musical bone in your body. And you might not particularly like the music that we play here. You might find it too loud or too soft or too emotive. But it is essential, friend, that you find a way to regularly worship the Lord in, in your own way. 
For your king deserves it, and your heart needs it, and your spiritual health requires it. Lastly, church, why must we understand that the kingdom of God is at war with the kingdom of darkness? Because embracing our spiritual battle reminds us that God's victory has already been secured. In in 1 Samuel chapter 17, a young shepherd boy named David dared to challenge the great Philistine champion Goliath to a fight to the death. It's the favorite story of every six-year-old boy. And despite his lack of experience and strength and stature, the Lord was with this young shepherd, and the Lord enabled David to defeat the great Goliath with a single rock flung from his sling. You might remember that when the Philistine army saw that their great champion, their great hero, had been killed, that they took off running, headed to the hills. And we're told that the entire Israelite army then began to pursue the Philistines. The Israelites pursued the Philistines all the way to the gates of Gath and Ekron, two of the Philistines' capital cities. And then finally, after decimating the Philistine army, the Israelites returned to plunder the Philistines' camp. Now, I want you to imagine with me that you're an old farmer living in Israel at this time. So you're not not in the army. You're an old farmer. You're living in Israel. You're an Israelite at this time. And as you step out of your front door of your home, you see hundreds of Israelite soldiers running at a furious pace along the road near your home. Your first reaction, if we're honest, would probably be to seize up in fear because you would be unsure if the Israelites were running to an enemy, pursuing an enemy, or running from an enemy. And if the Israelite army was being chased, then the enemy might soon be on your doorstep. And so you might head out to the road and and ask one of the soldiers running with sword in hand just why he was running. And if you stopped one of those Israelite soldiers who was running along the road on the day of Goliath's death, what would they have said to you? Here's what they would have said. After, after catching their breath, they would have said, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. For there has been a great victory for the people of God. But we soldiers, we can take no credit. For we contributed nothing to this victory. No, it was the single effort of one young shepherd who did all of the work. One young shepherd defeated our great enemy all by himself and secured the victory for our people. And because our enemy has been defeated, the soldier would have said, we no longer need to live in fear. Because our enemy has been defeated, we no longer need to hide. No, we are now on the offensive We are now attacking, we are plundering, we are retaking territory that was lost. For we seek to reclaim everything that the enemy stole from us. And friends, what is the central message of the Christian faith? As followers of Jesus, we believe that hundreds of years after David defeated Goliath, another shepherd appeared on the scene. And this shepherd, who we call Jesus after living a perfect life, died on the cross for the sins of this world, that the debt of his followers might be paid, and that he might ensure the devil's defeat. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says this, 
Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Satan was defeated at the cross because his accusations no longer have any weight for the follower of Jesus. Satan was defeated. He was made impotent at the cross because Jesus' death secured our right standing before the Father forever. Satan was defeated at the cross, church, because while he can point to our past, we can now remind him of our future. Because we no longer fear death, he who is given the power of death has been rendered powerless. And so what now is our testimony as followers of Jesus? What now is the the good news that the church gets to proclaim? It is this. There has been a great victory for the people of God. But we, the people of God, can take no credits. For we contributed nothing to the victory. No, it was the single effort of one shepherd who did all of the work. One good shepherd named Jesus defeated our great enemy, the devil, all by himself on the cross and secured the victory for his followers. And because our enemy has been defeated, we no longer need to live in fear. Because our enemy has been defeated, we no longer need to hide. No, we are now on the offensive. We, the church, are now attacking. We are plundering. We are retaking territory that was lost. For we seek to reclaim everything that the enemy stole from us. Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand, church?